Father, we have named you today, and we've picked about a half a dozen, but there's so many more. You are for us always what we need. You are always for us the end of our desires. And we've come to this place to be schooled in living in the reality of who you are and who your kingdom is calling us to be. And so, Holy Spirit, would you come? Would the word of God, as it is explained, would your voice be heard in that? We know that wherever the nature of the Lord is spoken of, there he is present. And we're thankful for that too. So come, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Uh, and kids can go back with Jordan. And uh, uh, be in 1 Samuel chapter 31. Um, if you are new to Regen this morning, uh, uh, we kind of have this approach to preaching that I like to call Netflix binging. So we typically Netflix binge a whole book of the Bible at a time. And so since Mother's Day... Uh, we have been binge-watching 1 Samuel, and uh, we are going to take a break with that and in two weeks move to the book of Colossians and then pick back up with 2 Samuel after the first of the year. But if you've got a Bible, go ahead and go to 1 Samuel 31. You can grab your phone and Google 1 Samuel 31. Guys, this Bible that I've had since college, is you, it broke. Oh, there it happened. Look. I'm very sad about it, you know? I hope it's not like a prophetic thing um, about, I don't know what it would be, but um, I'm trying to figure out how I summarize a whole season of a show. The nation of Israel asks for a king in rejection of their true king, who is God, and they are given a man named Saul. Saul is tall and good-looking, and that is all there is to commend him to us. He is tall, he is good-looking, and he is a fool. Saul could not do what the word of the Lord says if his life depended on it, and so he is rejected as king, and God chooses another king, a young man named David, who is described as a man after God's own heart. And here at the end of 1 Samuel, Saul will meet his end, Saul will meet his end, and David will respond to that in a surprising way. This week I was at the Canfield Fair, even though we were sick, the Canfield Fair comes once a year and you play hurt, you know what I'm saying? So uh, we went to the fair, and uh, we're, we're standing there, a couple of our friends are with us, and all of a sudden, I look up and I see my wife hugging our district superintendent. We're part of the United Methodist Church, so we have a district superintendent who oversees about 70 churches in our area. I look up and I see my wife hugging our district superintendent. And I think, well, that's not surprising. Uh, Abby lives uh, here in Canfield. And I look past Abby, and I then see the bishop and her cabinet all there. Uh, and the bishop is like my boss's 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 boss. You know what I'm saying? Uh, and the cabinet, they hold my life in their hands and my fate. Guys, I started sweating in a way that I have never sweat in my entire life. And I had, I'm pretty sure, the entire conversation with them and of a voice roughly like this pitch the whole time. Like, oh, Bishop Malone, like, there you are. And the whole time it's happening, I'm thinking, how do I impress? How do I show honor? How do I... 
If you're far away from our little corner of the world, a bishop is weird. But in my corner of the world, it is very important to me that we show honor to this person. It was very important when I was once in a conversation with some pastors. One of the pastors said, oh, I know Tracy. Our bishop's name is Tracy Malone. I know Tracy. Uh, we served a church together in Illinois. And before he could finish that sentence, somebody cut off and said, Bishop Malone. The title. The reason I'm bringing all this up is today I want to talk a little bit as we look at the end of Saul's life and David's response to it. I want us to talk a little bit about a culture of honor and a culture of contempt. A culture of honor and a culture of contempt. So take a look with me at 1 Samuel uh, 31. Um, this is a rough overview of the book, and we're kind of at the bottom of the second box and the top of the third as Saul is about to die. If you've been with us the last couple of weeks, and you can catch up with all of this uh, through our podcast too, uh, you'll remember that David has kind of gone missing, and that's because starting in 1 Samuel chapter 27, David is hiding with the Philistines to avoid Saul. While he's hiding among the Philistines, this is ironic because the Philistines are like Israel's notorious enemy. They are the Browns to my Steelers, uh, the Michigan to my Ohio State. Um, He's hiding among them. This gets him away from Saul, but it also lets him use that cover to eliminate some of Israel's enemies. And while this is happening, though, the Philistines are at war with Israel. You'll recall, again, if you were here last week, that Saul saw the Philistines and his heart trembled greatly because Saul doesn't have an ounce of courage in him. So now we turn back into 1 Samuel 31, the battle between the Philistines and Saul, and this is what it says in verse 1 of chapter 31. It says, Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, And the Philistines struck down Jonathan and his two strangely named brothers, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Read, he got shot a couple times. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and he fell upon it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor bearer, and all his men. And when the men of Israel, who were on the other side of the valley, and those beyond the Jordan, saw that the men of Israel had fled, and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled, and the Philistines came and lived in them. Here at the Beginning of 1 Samuel 31, Saul meets his end, and the Philistines strike a major victory. They get to pick up a few cities that belong to the Israelites. Most of Israel's fighting force has been decimated. Saul and his sons, the royal line, is this close to being destroyed. Saul, struck by arrows, is once again, not to our surprise, afraid. And so he says to his armor bearer, Take your sword, thrust me through, so that, he says, I don't want the Philistines to mistreat me. Saul is afraid of what the Philistines will do to his body, how they will dishonor his body after he dies. The armor bearer won't, and so in a particularly shameful, cowardly way in the ancient Near East, Saul falls on his sword and dies. In verse 9 it says, so the Philistines cut off Saul's head and 
stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtara and they, fast, they fastened his body to the wall of Beth Jan. I don't know how you fasten a decapitated corpse. Is that like a 3M hook scenario? I don't know. It's pretty humid in the desert, so it probably wouldn't work. Saul's body is absolutely desecrated. It's his fear come true. His armor is placed in the temple of a foreign god to show that god's victory over Saul. His body is fastened to this wall. It's brought down by, the text says, by the men of Jabesh, Jabesh Gilead. They were saved once by Saul in 1 Samuel 11. So they sneak into the city and they get his body and they actually burn it. They don't bury it, which is unusual. So now flip over to 2 Samuel 1. Saul is dead. By the way, fist bump your neighbor if you've been here most of the time because you just learned one whole book of the Old Testament. Congratulations. 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. It's a city in Philistine territory that David's been living in. On the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. David and this man have a conversation where this guy tells David everything that's happened. Understand that David and Saul have had a rivalry for about 15 to 16 chapters of this book, where Saul has spent just about every minute that he could find trying to kill David. He's tried throwing a spear to pin David to the wall. He's tried chasing him through the wilderness. He's tried surrounding him when David's been hiding in a village. And now, here in 2 Samuel chapter 1, David hears that his enemy, this person, this man who has chased him and put his life in danger for, for months, for years, is dead. So look at, first, uh, check at 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 11. Then David threw a party, had a feast, and uh, danced all night. That is not what happens. Verse 11 of chapter 1 of 2 Samuel. David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. Verse 17, and David lamented with this lament over Saul and Jonathan, his son, And he said, it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jashar. Listen, I don't know if I've had enemies, but there have been people who when they left my life, I thought, don't let the door hit you on the way out. Uh, A friend of mine says uh, that everyone brightens a room, some by entering and some by leaving. Think about it and you'll get it. There have been people in my life when they have left, it has been relief, it has been good riddance, it has been a breath of fresh air, and you would think, you would think that David, upon hearing that Saul is dead, would breathe a sigh of relief, that David would celebrate, and he doesn't. Instead, David stops, David honors Saul, his enemy. He mourns his death. David writes a song. David, who's responsible for about half of the Psalter, the book of songs in the Bible, David writes a song addressing the mountain where Saul died, addressing the daughters of Israel, addressing the Philistines, telling them not to gloat, addressing the daughters of Israel, telling them to mourn, addressing his best friend, his friend, his friend Jonathan, who is now dead. 
he, he writes this song that honors Saul. And this isn't just a glimpse into what happens in the ancient Near East. This isn't just a glimpse into a culture. This is a glimpse into how God's people are called to live and work together, operating in a culture of honor in the midst of a culture of contempt. Operating in a culture of honor in the midst of a culture of contempt. Honor is a word that we don't hear very often. Maybe we hear it on Veterans Day or Memorial Day or July 4th. We are a culture that has lost its sense of honor. My wife and I went and saw The Lion King up in Cleveland on Friday night, and there was a lot. We, we go to plays in Cleveland pretty frequently, and there was a lot of up and down movement, a lot of getting up and getting down. Now, there were a lot of like little kids there, so bathroom breaks, that makes sense. But there was this group of adults to my left who... Um, I, I'm 90% sure they were playing some sort of drinking game with the Lion King because they were up and down to the bar the whole show. And, and, and behind me, behind us are these two women, and they're talking. My wife and I are whispering a little bit. Somebody was watching Jack, and so we're like kind of whispering about what's going on with that. But talking at like full volume the whole show about what's going on. And the only word I had to think about that was like, that is so dishonoring. It was so dishonoring. A few weeks ago, I was at a grad school class. And uh, here's this professor who has studied and is really well-known and an expert in his field. And we get two and a half days with this guy. I'm very excited to be with him. And as he's lecturing on the first day, there's this dude in the back of the class who, as the professor is lecturing, is talking full volume to his friend. And not like brief remarks. Now, to be clear, my friend Caleb and I were talking all of class too, but we had the courtesy to text. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> but this guy is talking. As the class goes on, there's these, these two women in the class that every time he said something, they would like correct him publicly. And on the last day at the last break, he had to say three times, we're, all, it's, we're not kindergartners. Like, we're like 30 and above at grad school. He had to do three times to get us back to come and learn. And the whole time I'm thinking, this is so dishonoring. We don't, in our culture, not only have we lost a sense of honor, we have replaced that with a culture of contempt. We no longer disagree. When someone says something that we don't like, we don't respond with disagreement. We respond with disgust. We respond with disgust. A psychologist uh, describes contempt by saying that anger is what I feel toward a peer, Resentment is what I feel toward a superior, but contempt is what I have for a subordinate. Our culture of contempt, you and I, are constantly minimizing and subordinating to ourselves these people with opinions that differ from us. And we see this all throughout our culture. Have you seen this little thing on social media? I can't find it. I did some Googling this morning. It's, I think it's like a meme, so it's like a picture of some text, and it's like someone says, I love oranges. And somebody comments back, how can you say that about pineapple? Right? And don't eat, you know, and, and I love grapefruit. How dare you? Right? You can't say something on social media without someone not just disagreeing, but with someone basically calling you an idiot for holding your position. This has, by the way, translated into politics. Some of you had a really great 2016 election. Some of you did not. Regardless of who that is, Trump is not in office. President Trump is in office. Prior to that, 
Obama wasn't in office. President Obama was in office. We're going to show you a passage of scripture later. Among the people of Jesus, we do not call our officials by their last names contemptuously. We give them the honor that they are due. But when someone shares a political view that is different than ours, we respond not with disagreement, but with contempt. How could a person possibly think this way? Contempt has bled its way into our culture in the Mahoning Valley. Think about how people talked about that TJX facility moving into Lordstown. Think about how people talk about the CEO of General Motors when Lordstown closed. These are sad things. These are might be frustrating things, but they are not a cause for contempt. This culture of contempt in our valley says that outsiders aren't to be trusted, young people need to wait their turn, and new ideas are to be treated with suspicion. This culture of contempt says that when leaders lead, they are wrong. When you tell a secret that you're not supposed to tell, when you respond with sarcasm, which in the Greek literally means to tear flesh, when you respond with sarcasm to everything, when you post passive-aggressive little images on your social media to get back at that one person, when you talk about a person behind their back, you are dishonoring people that you say you love, and you are participating in a culture of contempt. But what we see here in First and Second Samuel, what we see throughout the culture of the Bible, is that the people of Jesus have an operating system. Their iOS is honor, not contempt. It's honor. If you hang around with more charismatic Pentecostal people, they they love culture of honor stuff. They kind of own this stuff. And I admit, I want to say at the outset of this that I am leading with intellectual capital today, not personal experience capital. I offer myself to you today as a living example, not a perfect example, because I have only recently started to become convinced that this idea of a culture of honor that I have in certain moments kind of felt ewy towards is actually what the Bible is aiming for. There's a, someone on our teaching team, Vanessa, the first time she taught, she spent the first five minutes talking about me and kind of saying how much she appreciated me and how much she liked me and how we need to be so thankful for Kyle for this and so thankful for Kyle for that. And the first thing I went up to her after, I said, never do that again. All she was doing was offering me honor, right? And I shut her down, right? One of the things that I'm starting to wrestle with is that this honor culture that my friends talk about, this honor culture that my friends live in might just be the way the Bible works. Let me just read you a few passages from the New Testament. Um, Ephesians 6, 2, honor your father and your mother. Paul says, this is the first commandment with a promise. Romans, repay no one for evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Do you notice that? Give thought to do what is sight of the honorable. Don't try to do what is honorable. Don't stumble into honorable. Be intentional about giving honor where honor is due. 1 Corinthians, Paul says, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Philippians 2.29, so receive him in the Lord and honor such people. That's about church leadership. Honor widows who are truly widows. 1 Timothy 5, let the elders who rule Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Uh, 1 Peter 2.17, this is the one that, the last one on on the right, this is the one that will blow your mind. He says, honor everyone, Peter does, 
love the brotherhood, honor the emperor. Listen, Peter is writing to a group of people who are actively being persecuted by the Roman Empire. And by the way, persecution doesn't just mean like, oh, our culture doesn't share our values anymore. Persecution means, no, we're going to use Christians' bodies as torches to light our parties. This means when you gather for house church every week, we're not sure if all of us are going to be here because somebody might have gotten taken in the night and killed in the Colosseum fed to lions. And Peter says to this group of people, honor the emperor. Jesus says, by the way, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and and to God what is God's, which means I don't get to be mad about how my tax dollars are used. Jesus says, give your taxes to Caesar, the very Caesar who is persecuting you. Honor the emperor, he says. If you don't like a politician, if you did not like Donald Trump, you probably did not write a David-like song the day after he was elected. If you do not like President Donald Trump, you probably did not write a David-like song the day that after he was elected. You probably did not speak well of him. 1 Peter 3.17, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as a weaker vessel. That is actually a compliment, not a slap. We can unpack that another time, but live with your wives in an understanding way, showing her honor. What my favorite one is uh, this one from Romans 12.10, outdo one another in showing honor. It's like it's a little game. It's like a little competition. No, let me honor you. No, let me honor you. No, your preference first. No, my preference first. No, you. No, you. No, you. No, you. That, that is the operating system which the people of Jesus are called to operate within the body of Christ and is the operating system that we are called to bring into our families and into our workplaces and into everywhere we go, a culture of honor. And this is important. This is important for two reasons. The first is, well, it's important for one. As the people of Jesus, we have lost the loving conversation in our culture. We are no longer perceived to be loving. You, they will know you as Christians by your love, Jesus says. They will know you are my people. They will know you are my disciples by your love. But we have lost the loving conversation. And that is not because of a traditional approach to marriage. It is because when I sit at Panera, tippy-tappying away on my laptop, minding my own business, there's a booth of people behind me spending their entire lunch complaining about people in their church complaining about their pastor, and I almost, this close, almost like peeked around the booth and was like, hey, I'm praying for you guys, right? And then my phone rang and I couldn't, which was probably Jesus. Um, We have lost the loving conversation. We have lost the front of love to a watching world, and I'm wondering if by pursuing a culture of honor in our society as the people of Jesus, we might not prove ourselves to be distinct. That if we lead with honor, love will follow. I think it's also important within the body of Christ because especially if you're new to Regen, where it's still a tiny little baby church. But as we grow, contempt often replaces love because familiarity breeds what? It breeds contempt. 
So we're like all in the season where we have, we're having kids together, we're getting married, we're starting our lives, and preferences and the way that we do things are starting to bubble up. Thank you, Jesus, like nobody's trying to sell me like Norwex or Tupperware yet. It's coming, yeah. Okay, if you're thinking about it, this is the Holy Spirit leading you away from that, okay? Um, as we do all these things together and we become more and more familiar with one another, we will have to continually guard against contempt. And very often what we do is we say, I love this person so much, but, and then we dishonor them with our words. And what I'm proposing for us as a church is for us to start to pursue a culture of honor for the sake of that's what the people of Jesus do. That's what the people of Jesus do. And so what are some ways that we might grow in an honor culture individually as we take it to work, as we bring it into our marriages, into our families, those kinds of things? A few things. The first is to never, ever, ever, ever speak negatively about someone to someone else. Not in the name of processing, not in the name of a prayer request, not in the name of let's just be honest. Never, ever speak negatively of someone else. We are so quick to speak about what isn't there, what is lacking, and what is missing. That we rarely ever speak of what is there, what they have in spades. I guarantee you the way to change the relational conversation of your workplace, the relational conversation, the relational culture of your family is when somebody comes to you and speaks negatively about a sibling, about a, a parent, about somebody in our community, you don't have to say, don't talk like that, you dirty sinner. When they say something negative, simply say something about that person back. Aaron comes to me and says, I can't believe Joey's this way, this way, and this way. I could say, yeah, trying to sympathize with Aaron, right? That's kind of what we do. We feel this pressure to sympathize in that moment and kind of engage in that closeness. What would happen instead if I just said something positive about Joey? What if I spoke life over Joey instead of speaking what was lacking? I guarantee you Aaron's going to walk away feeling like a big jerk, which isn't that just the way of Jesus, you know? People, uh, our previous bishop actually said in one of his last little talks that people will fall apart to the level that you pick them apart. You've heard of this idea of like self-fulfilling prophecy. When we, when we just talk about how bad a person is, they will just become that bad in our observation, whether or not they are or not. But people will rise to the level that we love them and they will rise to the level that we honor them. What does it look like for us to intentionally build a posture where when somebody says something negative about someone to me, you respond back with what is, there, what is there, not what is missing, but what is there. And by the way, this is a spiritual stronghold over our valley. We have been trained from birth to see what is missing. We've been trained from birth to see what is lacking. We've been trained in a scarcity culture, which says, I can't praise that person because I won't get praise. Right? Second, what I want you to do right now in this moment is to decide, not wait till you feel like it, not till like you get home, decide right now, decide right now in your heart to stop thinking about all of the people that you wish were hearing this sermon. And decide in your heart right now to give honor to the person that you feel dishonored by. Okay? Because what you're feeling is, I can't give honor to that person because if I do that, I'm going to lose. 
This isn't a win-lose scenario. By the way, if I'm honoring someone, Jesus will honor my honoring by honoring me. Okay? I'm just seeing how many times I can say the word honor. And the reason I'm saying this is that the immature among us just got another weapon to beat their spouse over the head with, to beat their kids over the head with, to beat their family over the head with, to beat their coworker over the, fa- over the head with. You need to honor me. Do you know the Bible never says insist to others that they honor you? It just says honor others. It assumes that what we give away, we will get back, which might be the most Eastern thing I've ever said from the pulpit, but I think it's true. I think what we give away is what we will give back. What we put down is what others pick up and give back to us. Eliminate right now from your head all the people that you wish were hearing this sermon, all the people that have dishonored you. I want you to get out a little mental Tupperware container. I want you to put them in there. I want you to close the lid. Have you done that? Now stick them in the back of the fridge and wait six months. See how moldy and gross it is? Just throw it away. Right? Don't don't clean the Tupperware out. Don't run it through the dishwasher. It's done. It's gone. The third thing I would say is do not ever stop saying thank you. The best way that we honor people is by showing gratitude. We do that. This will revolutionize your marriage right now. Let me tell you why. Nobody likes to do dishes. Nobody likes to take out the garbage. Nobody likes to clean the house. Nobody likes to fold the laundry. Nobody likes to put laundry away. And when your spouse does that, they deserve a thank you. By the way, Aaron is moving. He is our dishwasher. We're now hiring. Um, He's moving away, and my wife and I suddenly realize somebody's going to need to do the dishes. (laughs) Um, So say thank you. My my uncle told me a story recently, uh, and he told me the story about he had a boss that that nobody in his uh, workplace particularly liked. And he said, I could have scored a lot of easy points with my coworkers by joining in on, you know, hating on this manager. And he said, what I decided in that moment was that the Christian thing to do and the Jesus-loving thing to do was to honor her. And so he said, I would, every chance I get, publicly thank her and publicly honor her. Hey, thank you so much for doing that. You didn't have to do that, and it made my life way easier. Thank you for this. Thank you for that. It shifted the entire culture of his workplace just by saying thank you just by saying thank you. One of the best ways that we show honor is by gratitude. Uh, Finally, um, change the question. Change the question. As you're dealing with difficult people, we're dealing with some difficult people in my life. Not any of you, ever. You're so nervous right now, and I love it. Uh, As we're dealing with some difficult people in my family, art Uh, gave the encouragement to Steph and I to change the question from what is the most loving thing to do to what is the most honoring thing to do. From what is the most loving thing to do to what is the most honoring thing to do. And let me tell you what's changed about that. Is I'm very good at saying I love people and not following that up with actions. And so what is the most loving thing to do for this person is like, okay, fine, I will do it. Like if I have to, I will go. But by shifting the question to what is most honoring, first of all, if it is a toxic person in your life, it does help you keep the boundaries in place to a certain degree, but it also helps you not set up so many boundaries that you cut off relationship. What is the most honoring thing to do? 
What is the most honoring thing I can do for my spouse? What is the most honoring thing I can do for my parents? What is the most honoring thing I can do for my boss? What is the most honoring way to deal with my coworker? And when, instead of like thinking, how do I tell this person how I feel? And how do I get this across? And how do I make sure my boundaries aren't violated? If we change the conversation, how do I show honor to this person? It revolutionizes things. The reason I'm teaching on this is um, Jesus is doing some things in my life. And my sense is that our way forward as a church is connected to the strength and breadth and depth of our honor culture. My leadership in the next season, I think, is going to rise and fall on my honoring of people. And I think as a church, what God is stirring in us, which is vague and we're feeling around the edges of it, is dependent on our honoring, on developing a culture of honor. Not for people solely in leadership, but a a general, pervasive, ongoing honor culture in our marriages and in our homes for one another. David watches his enemy die, and he honors him. And what we're prone to think is when we do the right thing, God makes the story go happily ever after, really fast, to that it's over. But what's super interesting is David, who is anointed to be king in 1 Samuel chapter like 16, who is chased all the way through chapter 31, still doesn't ascend to the throne until 2 Samuel 5. He still has to wait. He is still confronted with enemies, and at every turn... What causes David's leadership and what causes David's character to grow is his decision to honor, to honor people. Peter says that we have been honored by being included in this covenant, multi-ethnic, multi-generational, multi-historic family of Jesus. Our call together as a church is to share that honor with one another. I'm going to pray. Aaron's going to lead us in some response time. We'll receive communion. We'll be out of here by 117. I'm just kidding. Let's pray. God, for the honor that you have bestowed on us by making us your children, we give you thanks. For the honor that you have given us, By calling us by name, we're so thankful, and we want to be an honoring people. We want to be an honoring community. We talk a lot at Regen about being authentic. I wonder if you're inviting us to be authentic and honoring and honorable. So come and stir in us, Holy Spirit, what only you can do. Amen. Amen.